Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is August 30th, 2011. It's a Tuesday, and this is episode 735. And that means there's one day left in August... And it's September, folks. Fall is coming. I know it's still hot. It was 96 degrees yesterday when uh, I went out to the compost facility with my wife, who came out with me and helped me shovel compost and fill up an 8-foot truck uh, bed. And uh, I guess there's a little over a cubic yard there uh, that we shoveled yesterday in the heat. And uh, it just doesn't feel like fall yet. But you know what? When the sun got lower in the sky... And uh, you walked into the shade, it actually felt cool for the first time in a long time. So the change is coming, you can feel it, it's just subtle. And the reason I bring this up once in a while, time is marching on, whether you are or not, you are on a sliding scale, you're getting more or less prepared and more or less dependent in every single day. There is no such thing as maintaining the status quo. You are not you are never staying the same in this world. You're either becoming more independent or less de- or less independent. That's it. Uh, a few words on that from a listener today we'll talk about in a moment. Today we are actually going to do another listener feedback show. There's so much stuff that comes in. I just need to cover more of it. So once in a while we'll do a couple. I'm also getting ready to be gone for the weekend so uh, it helps to just have material delivered to you to do a show and get enough shows out for the week. I'm going to announce right now, Labor Day, there will not be an episode of the show. I'm going to take Labor Day off. I figure everybody gets a day off once in a while. But while I'm gone Thursday and Friday, there still will be shows. i got some cool stuff coming for you. Um, had Old Grouch scheduled from Old Grouch Military Surplus yesterday. He was supposed to do an uh, interview on making uh, your your diesel truck run on a mixture of diesel fuel and used motor oil. We're still going to do that, but he had an emergency dental situation, and even though he was out of the dentist in time to do the interview, he wasn't quite up to talking. So we postponed that for about a couple weeks. But I do have some other cool stuff. Uh, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy will be on uh, this week, as well as Frank Sharp Jr. from Fortress Defense Consultants. Uh, so some cool stuff while I'm away. Before we get into your feedback, and remember for shows like this, if you want me to uh, consider your con- content or comments or question for a show like this, send an email with question for Jack, comment for Jack, video for Jack, article for Jack, something like that in the subject line to jack at the survivalpodcast.com, and I'll consider getting it on the air. I get about 400 of those a day. That is not an exaggeration, so I only use a small portion of them. I do read them all, and I do pay attention to all my email. That is my personal email. If you need to get in touch with me, it's the best way to do it. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take care of those sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backyard Food Production with Marjorie down there somewhere in the vicinity of Austin. It's not really in Austin, but that's as close as we give to uh, her homestead. But you know what? She has set up a situation where they are able to pretty much, I'd say, provide about 80% of their needs off their land. And, you know, if they needed to, they could probably do 100% and get by. Uh, and they definitely could fill in the rest with bartering with neighbors because they've built a strong community. If you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, uh, whether it is for, uh, you know, your backyard that's a tenth of an acre in suburbia or whether you've got 10 acres in the country, 
Marjorie's system will work for you. They show you everything, how they do every part of what they do down there in their uh, DVD food production systems for a backyard or small farm. You've got to get that DVD. It costs about twice what it did when it came out, and that's because I told her a long time ago, you're not charging enough for the information you're providing on this DVD. There's a bonus CD with it of material that's probably worth the cost of the DVD alone just to have it assembled for you. So check out that DVD today, and if you don't have it yet, it's something to add to your uh, to your knowledge library. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants with Frank Sharp Jr., who I mentioned will be on the show for an interview. You know, it's great to have a gun, but there's two things you have to have to go with a gun to make it be, you know, something better than an expensive club. One is ammo, and one is training. Without training, the gun can become useless to you. You have no idea what's going to happen when a general insurges through your body. You also have to take this into account. If you are going to carry around something capable of taking life, you should know how to save life. Uh, because there is a potential for friendly fire incidents. There's a potential that when you're responding, maybe you don't care that the bad guy's dead, but maybe you care about somebody else you were protecting that was hit by the bad guy while you were doing the response. At Fortress Defense Consultants, they'll teach you how to defend yourself, how to use that weapon. They'll also teach you how to save lives. Get in touch with Frank soon and set up some training. If you can't go to Illinois where he's at, remember, put together a group of guys. Talk to people at work or whatever. Get a group of you, six, 12 guys together. Get in touch with Frank. They'll schedule a training and they'll come to you. How cool is that? Um, next up, remember, connect with me. Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, best ways to do that. Also check out the forum in the gear shop. Last but not least, uh, if you love the show, if you think to yourself every day, man, this show is great. I like listening to it. If it wasn't in my life, uh, I would lose something. And it's worth something to me. If you think that something is worth, let's say, 20 cents an episode, consider joining the MSB and you'll be supporting the show and voluntarily contributing to the show that you're receiving. The other side of it, though, is if you use the discounts that are there, get the free ebooks and what have you, the, the, the program pays for itself probably tenfold. Most of the people that use it get back to me and say, it's one of the biggest money-saving things I've ever done in my life. So do consider the Member Support Brigade to save even more money, law enforcement, military, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service. Email me before you join. I will give you a special discount code. We call that our National Service Discount, recognizing those who have served this country at home and or abroad. All right, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into our main topic of today's show. There was just so much stuff coming in. All this stuff came in like yesterday, and there was like a ton more, and I just thought, I'm going to go ahead and do this. First one comes from Carl. Carl sends me a link to an article on the Huffington Post, and what Carl says is, it's uh, homesteading is getting to be mainstream. Even the quote Puffington Post end quote is noticing, and they've got an article on it. It's an interesting article. I think there's some real technical errors with the article, and if you read some of the comments below it, uh, you'll see that uh, that some of them are pointed out. Uh, but it's kind of cool. Basically, what this person attempted to do and did an okay job with was determine. Okay, if I wanted to live off grid. With a little house, 2,000 square feet, uh, actually, uh, I think it's an 1,800 square foot house, 2,000 square foot roof. Uh, I don't know how that's going to work out for him. Like I said, there's some technical errors there. Uh, but, you know, it's just, what do we need? And what they come up with is about two acres. And uh, it's kind of cool. It's really one you're going to want to look at rather than have me read it to you. But I'll give you some of the specs that they came up with. The average American roof size is 2,000 square feet. For one year of electricity, you need about 375 square feet of, of uh, solar panels on the roof. Uh, so it's doable, basically, with an average roof. I think there's some technical errors right there. Um, they were looking at average efficiency of panels, and I think that you better be living somewhere 
where you can get a lot of thermal heat from solar uh, heat, and you better be living somewhere where you don't need that much air conditioning to get by with that. Uh, you're not going to be running the AC full tilt bore, or maybe even at all with that level of solar uh, panel activity. But there are places where you could definitely get by with it. Um, looking at the caloric needs for a family of four, uh, they come up with a number of about 9,200 calories, and that requires 76,666 square feet uh, with a layout for a vegetable garden. Uh, also, they're looking at growing your own wheat here. One year of wheat requiring 12,000 roughly square feet. The average person uh, uses 1.5 pounds of wheat a week. In order to maintain the diet of wheat, you'll have to have at least 3,000 square feet of wheat per person. Uh, then there's allocating 2,600 square feet for corn. Uh, they're ag allocating about 65 square feet for housing your hens with a flock uh, of about 13 birds. Uh, some dairy goats taking up 100 square feet for their housing. Uh, and about 207 square feet for three pigs to be slaughtered every year. So it, it's kind of interesting, but in the end they come up with a number of 89,050 square feet, which is about two acres. It's an interesting thought, and it's an interesting way to figure things out for yourself if you're thinking about this. Let me throw a couple things that I see as a big flaw here. Growing your own corn and taking up um, 2,600 square feet For corn, seems like a pretty big waste to me. It really does. Um, corn is one of the most inexpensive crops out there. Yeah, there's cross-pollinating GMOs. We'll hear in a minute about how that's falling on its own face. But corn's inexpensive. It's also a very nutrient-dependent um, crop. It's hard on soil. Uh, it requires crop rotation. Uh, so I don't think it makes the most sense as a homegrown grain, especially on that level. If somebody would say maybe they were going to grow, let's say, 500 square feet of corn uh, with four or 500 square foot paddocks going through rotation using and then providing 25% of the corn estimated here, I think it would make a lot more sense. And frankly, I don't eat that much corn, and I don't want to eat that much corn. On the wheat, the wheat actually is interesting because you could actually get more with less on the wheat Because you can, in most areas, you can plant wheat in fall and harvest in spring and free that space up to grow other things. So growing your own wheat has some advantages, but I think that you would stretch this thing a lot by bringing in some other easier-to-grow summer grains, stuff like quinoa, uh, sorghum, uh, amaranth. Uh, they're, they're all seeds, but they can be used as a grain. So I think that those can work together. There's also holus barley uh, that could be grown in the wintertime to augment the wheat. So I think that... Um, this is a little one-dimensional, this plan, but I like the layout and the way that she did the workup in the article here. Again, I think there's some definite technical errors on how much yield you're going to get. I think you're planning on 100% yield here. We all know that never works, uh, but it's interesting, and it would be an interesting template to use and to extract and to draw out and use for your own use. So I am going to recommend you check the article and uh, the way that she did things out. Um, Next one comes, said so we do some AAR type stuff, after action review stuff um, on the hurricane as, as things progressed forward and we got some reports in. Um, this one comes from somebody that, that stood right through the hurricane and this is the lessons uh, that he learned. His name is Russ and it says, good morning Jack, I wanted to drop you an after action report of lessons learned from Hurricane Irene. I'm a transplant from the high desert of Idaho to the coastal lowlands of Rhode Island. 
I'm renting a room. I own a home in Idaho and took a job here to kill my debt back home. So my preps here are much more limited in scope than what I had in Idaho. Uh, lessons learned. Number one, a generator is a must-have for areas with power outages are a threat. Not having electrical p power changes your entire mindset. Uh, yeah, we have small generator systems, and we're looking at bringing in something between a 14 and 20K generator for our homestead with automatic backup running on natural gas. Uh, we think that's going to be probably the best way to go, and we're looking at ways to cut the cost of doing that. So I completely agree with that, and that's not just about hurricanes. I live in a remote area where if our power's out, it can be out for up to a week at a time at certain times if there's heavy outages elsewhere, simply because we come at the end of the line. And I can't complain about being at the end of the line. If there's you know 15,000 people without power down in Hot Springs, and they need to get those people on before they get the 35 families up on my mountain on, How can I argue with that? So completely agree with lesson number one. Lesson two, if at all possible, or the next time you need to replace them, install a gas cook stove and water heater. Simple upgrade that will usually uh, still run even if the electricity is out and won't stress your generator. Uh, that's something I also completely agree with. I'm, I'm, you know, we just did a new stove, and we probably shouldn't have. We should probably put in a gas stove. Uh, we're going to have to bring in a, a very large propane tank anyway. Uh, but I, I think that maybe switching over to a gas hot water heater is something we're going to look at doing. And we're also looking at plumbing in a couple uh, uh, space heaters that run on the propane uh, so that if we have the power out, we can use the propane for direct heat instead of electrical conversion and then running the heating system and maybe just heat the bedroom when we go to bed at night and keep the heat on very low so it uses less power as well. So there's a lot of, lot of wisdom there that applies to things other than hurricanes. Remember always, folks, commonality of disaster. You don't prepare for disasters. You prepare to do without systems of support. You're going to hear about the buyer's remorse in a minute uh, of people that don't think that way, that just are reactive instead of proactive. Three, always be assessing your go bag. This is what I'm proudest of after going through this little storm. So many commuters carry backpacks to and from work. I feel like I completely blend in here in my new urban area. I put that list below. I, yeah, completely agree there. We'll give you his list in a minute. Number four, the impending storm allowed me to chat with a couple of coworkers about prepping in a way that might help them assume responsibility for their own preparedness and show them how simple it really is. Five, finally I went to Walmart before the storm was supposed to hit to see how the population responded. The attached picture is from Providence, Rhode Island, Walmart about 7 p.m. on Saturday night. And uh, I, I probably won't post the picture, but I'll explain to you what it is. It is an entire line of shelving completely empty with one box of cereal on it. That is all there is. There is nothing else in the store. And there's some confused lady standing there staring at the empty shelf as though she's not quite sure how it got that way. Uh, so I think that's, uh, that's definitely another lesson. Remember, you can't wait until the disaster's announced to prepare. That's what the sheep will do. Um, last bit here from Russ says, in my pack I bring, uh, I, I have three days worth of food, two cases of 20 cliff bars. You may be hungry, but at 1500 calories a day you'll be alive. Uh, catered in, uh, hiker water filtration, usable first aid kit, tools, a change of clothes, dry underwear and a Ziploc bag equals priceless, a pair of mechanics gloves, a pair of Vibram five finger shoes, 100-ounce camelback built into a black mule backpack, Eton crank radio, tsunami mobile battery pack. It'll recharge your cell phone five times on one charge and a little has a little LED light built in. A Kindle for reading, a couple hundred feet of paracord. I passed a couple of hours braiding neck, neck lanyards for work IDs. 
uh, a lighter, ex- empty Ziploc bags to keep random things dry, and of course lip balm. Great little kit. I like that. What's interesting to me is you say that you have all of this stuff in a Camelback Mule backpack. My wife and I both love the Mule. We both have one. Uh, we use it all the time. We use it for when we're hiking. We use it in the garden. I think it is the best small pack out there among the you know crowds that are totally unrelated to us, like the skateboarders and the mountain bikers and all. It has become the hydration backpack out there. But I don't see fitting this much stuff into one of those I'll have to see for myself if I could put this much stuff in there. It doesn't have a lot of cargo space, and the cargo space gets kind of consumed when you fill that 100-ounce hydration bladder. So, Russ, please email me back and let me know if there is a new mule backpack system that's maybe got the same hydration capabilities but has more cargo space. Because I'd be very interested to know about that because I am so pleased with the standard mule. Or if you're just really efficient at packing this, because the the two cases of 20, that's 40 cliff bars. Uh, not sure how you would get them all in there without crushing and mangling them. So uh, let me know, Russ. I'd, I'd like to know more about that. Um, Next one comes from David, uh, who is thinking of moving to Colorado, and uh, here's here's his response to me. I've been talking about the way, and I just wanted to be fair about this, I've been talking about the way Colorado is oppressive and won't even let you do simple things like have a rain barrel in your backyard. And he said technically that's true, but people off the water grid can do it. And, well, my response is, of course they can. They have to get water rights to put in a well. And if they have the water rights, of course they can, you know, I mean, come on. But what he's told me is that they kind of have this, like, understood thing that it's really not about a person with 50 gallons or 100 gallons of water in some barrels in their backyard and they have basically said they'll never go in backyards and check for this and what have you and I guess that's you know kind of like they're more concerned with people impounding you know 15,000 gallons of water in a stock tank or something like that uh, then or you know may, you know running the whole house off of rainwater I still find that oppressive, but it does mitigate things a little bit. For those of you gardening, though, and this was the advice that I gave to David, and he says he's already um, thinking this way and, and ahead of us, you know, on my advice as he's looking for land and figuring out where it can be uh, done, is hold the water in the ground. So things like swales, hugelkultur beds, uh, zais, if anybody's ever going to do that over here. Any way you can hold the water in the ground where it's not open water, it's actually more efficient, and then there's really no way to complain about it because your swale ditch that you put in doesn't sit there and hold standing water. Uh, it does right at the rainfall, but then it seeps into the ground. So there's there's no way that they can really you know get on you about that at all. And it allows you to actually be far more efficient. I was just listening to the Lot and Mollison PDC course, listening further to it, and I had one of those, you know, one hour sessions with, with, with Jeff Lawton talking where I had to just stop it and think for a day because of so many amazing things that came in. But he was talking about a key point, uh, a key point on a slope and saying basically, if you have a slope that's, that's concave, and then becomes convex, right where that switch happens, that's where your key point is. Very, very easy to see in the landscape. And that's where you put your key point dam. But it's actually a very inefficient dam. It's just there because it's the highest point you can efficiently hold water at all. But you have to move an awful lot of dirt, 
and put an awful lot of expense, and the size of your dam structure will exceed the volume of the water held within it uh, because you're dealing with that slope, and there's more efficient places to put dams in downhill. But if you take a hill and you look at a key point on both sides of a hill, and you might have this in miniature in a backyard with some slope, there will be a key point that mirrors the key point. In other words, all slopes, especially in, in temperate uh, climates and humid climates, Uh, are, are rounded instead of jagged. That's one way you can instantly look at a landscape and know is it is it dry, arid, or is it humid, temperate. And if you've got rounded slopes, you've got humid, temperate. I won't go deeper into it. But if you were to take and go from one key point around the slope to the second key point and put in a swale, it's very inexpensive. It's very quick. Done in a backyard, it can be done with a hand shovel, right? Um, but it does so much more, and it actually catches so much more water. So I wanted to be fair to Colorado, and I wanted to throw that little tip in there as well for you. So apparently Colorado does not have water barrel Nazis out there looking for you with your water barrel, and it's kind of a look-the-other-way thing if it's not done to excess. My concern, didn't we just hear yesterday about Newton's abatement uh, committees and uh, squads or whatever going out, these goon squads going out and shoving people off their land in, uh, in, in, in L.A. County? Uh, Antelope Valley, haven't we seen how many neighbors have picked up the phone to, to rat out other neighbors? They're having too many garage sales. They have a front yard garden and I don't like it. Oh, they have a basketball pole, right? We've seen this crap. So to me, if you set up a water barrel in Colorado, you are opening yourself up. So this is what I would say. If you wanted a water barrel in Colorado... I would build in a wood framed in planter box looking thing and inside of it I would plumb together let's say two 96 gallon super rugged trash cans and uh, I would maybe use some type of diversion of water that's not quite as obvious as a downspout to fill them up and uh, I don't think your neighbors would know what the hell it is in your backyard. I'm just saying if you're going to do this because of this look the other way policy that they seem to have still use some uh, concealment. And it's always a good thing for people not necessarily to know everything that you have anyway. You don't play poker with your with your cards facing your opponent unless you're stupid. Kind of remember that in your life. Uh, very, very similar question coming in from Rob. Rob says, quick question on rainwater harvesting for use in the entire house. I'd like your thoughts on my idea bef before I further my research. We've experienced the effects of Irene this past weekend with power outages. Sitting with no power gave me time to think about what I would do in a long-term situation with regards to water. Water is not only critical for survival in a physical sense, but just being able to take a warm shower bath is so important for morale of common man. We're able to store a lot of water, but there's only so much room for water, and it seems like the cost of water continues to go up every year in our area. Our current house is supplied by the township, gravity feed system, which means we have almost no pressure. Uh, it's down to almost zero at the because we're at the highest point in the township. We have had uh, a booster pump installed, so water comes in, goes into a 55-gallon holding tank, and then it's boosted to the rest of the house. I'm looking into alternate energy sources, uh, the power of the pump, but since it's wired to the box, I will have to investigate the best way to handle it since I'm not an electrician. You get an electrician out there, and you get them to tell you what you need, by the way. If I have power, that solves a lot of problems unless the water is not being treated. I'm thinking of hooking up a connection to my downspout with a flush valve and then moving water down into my basement into a secondary tank which will be tied to the existing tank some point before that tank. I imagine I will need a good filter 
uh, as a way to treat it and either treat it with iodine, chlorine, etc. It sounds okay on paper. I have no experience with this sort of thing. I'm hoping to qualify the idea. Any insight would be awesome. Thank you again for your selfless attitude and helping others. Rock on, Rob. Lots of people do it all over the world, Rob. No reason you can't do it. I, I don't know that you need to be worrying about iodine uh, and chlorine. Uh, I pretty much want chlorine out of water. Uh, a, a really good filtration system leading into that tank uh, will probably do all that you need and constantly keeping it serviced. Um, I would also tell you that your tank that's filled up by the city water, the township water, is is equally good for uh, being filled up with, with your rainwater. Um, there's there's no reason you can't use one to supplant the other, kind of like back feeding the grid. Now you can't back flush water, but when it rains or you know it's going to rain, you could go ahead and let the tank come down some and let the water fill it up. Uh, you could plumb multiple tanks down there. A thousand gallons of water goes a long way, and if you were affected by Irene, you're on the east coast and you get lots of rain. You might find that if you set this system up, you can get 90% or more of your water uh, for daily use without even any kind of uh, any kind of uh, real rationing uh, straight from rainwater, you might be able to get more. It really is all going to depend on uh, how much catchment you can do and how much room you have in that basement. Uh, you already have the pump system in place to do all of this, so that's one of your major expenses and concerns already taken care of. I'd get a plumber and an electrician out there and look for a solution, and and I would go ahead and enact it. I would also talk to some water specialists about how to uh, make sure that water's treated well. Um, when you look at putting the whole house on it, running through your plumbing and all, it's a little more complicated than, than just simply dumping, you know, five gallons of it into your Berkey and filtering it out for safe use. Uh, but then again, it may not be that much different. It, it really may not. There may be some way that if you had a, a way you could route it just through a couple different filtering stations, that it's, it's pretty much that. Uh, but that's not really my area of expertise. Uh, but I'm guaranteeing you there's some folks out there that can help you with it. And I would pursue it. Um, the next one, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, I don't talk about credit cards as much as I should anymore. I've pretty much said my piece on them and we all know that I'm against them. Uh, but every once in a while something comes in that I just have to comment on. And this, this is one of those times, like I said, this is one of those times it's an article that, um, that you just, you, you have a hard time understanding how anybody that would be advising people about money, uh, would would say that credit cards are good. Um, and this article comes from MSN Money, and it's six reasons to keep using your credit card. If you've chosen to stop using your cards, it might be a good idea to revisit that decision. Shunning plastic may be more costly than you think. And here's their reasons. I'm not going to read the article because it's all bullshit, but I'm just going to read it, um, the, 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 the bullet point reasons. One, credit cards help your credit score. You know, come on. Credit cards offer consumer protections. Yeah, that's what return policies are for. And if you want credit card protections, um, you can generally get those by using a Visa bank card or a MasterCard bank card that actually is just a debit card used like a credit card. So, duh. Credit cards offer safer automatic bill payment. Um, first of all, I don't do automatic bill payments. 
I really don't. Uh, but there's nothing safer than linking your bill payment to your bank. Your bank is more likely to call you uh, when something is wrong uh, than your credit card company. They'll process things and talk to you later about it. And you can notify your bank directly if you use a small bank, which I recommend, about what your bills that are automatically paid are. And anything else that comes in as automatic bill payment should be declined. And they'll do that for you. So bullshit. Uh, credit cards offer protection against identity theft. Actually, no, you dumbass. Credit cards create the opportunity for additional identity theft. Credit cards can help in an emergency. That's what emergency funds are for, dumbass. Credit cards reward savvy users. You know what? Screw the airline miles. Screw the cash back. Pay in cash. You'll get a bigger discount and you'll do better. This is crap and this is the fact that the media and your government doesn't like it when we stop blowing money and pissing it away because they've built the economy to run full tilt more on stupid consumer-based spending. Um, you know, and I... I When I when I look at this, I, I realize it's dumb, but um, and I could rant about it. But I'd like to propose that I just simply let someone else speak the counterpoint for me. What I'm about to play for you is kind of a uh, a redo of an old Saturday night live Saturday night live skit, and uh, I'll just play it for you, and you can listen to it, and uh, then I'll come back and we'll wrap this segment up and move on. I just can't get these numbers to add up. It's like we're never going to get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? Maybe I can help. Well, we sure could use it. We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to make some of our payments. Well, you're not alone. Did you know that millions of Americans live with debt beyond their control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff. You cannot afford. Let me see that. Okay, so if you don't have the money, you don't buy something? That sounds confusing. Well, I don't know, honey. There's this whole chapter on how to buy things with money you've saved. <laughs> Let me see. So where do you get this saved money? I tell you where and how in Chapter 3. Okay, so what if I want to buy something, but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. So if I don't have money to buy something, should I go ahead and buy it anyway? No. I'm really, really confused. It's a little confusing at first. Okay, what if I have the money? Can I buy it then? Yes. Okay, take away the money. Same story? No. You don't buy stuff if you don't have the money. Okay, I think I got it. I buy something I really want, and then I hope I've got the money to pay for it. No. You make sure you have the money, then you buy it. Oh, then you buy it. Wait, shouldn't you just go ahead and buy it anyway? No. Why not? It's in the book. It's only one page long. The advice is priceless, and the book is free. Ha! <laughs> I like the sound of that. Yeah, we can put it on our credit card. So get out of debt now. Write for your free copy of Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. If you order now, you'll also receive Seriously, if you don't have the money, don't buy it. Along with the 12-month subscription to Stop Buying Stuff magazine. So order today. All right, so I won't turn this into a, a you know a 15-minute Jack Spearco lecture on debt. 
I'll let that speak for it. And I love that. You mean if you don't have something, you don't buy it? Um, it it's, it's a pretty simple thing. And I'm going to put it to you this way. Uh, I hear from people all the time about the choices that they've made over the years that we've been doing the show and the advice that I've given. I've heard people say, I loved your advice on this and I took it. And I've heard other people say, you know, on, on advice on this, it didn't really work out for me. I have not had one, I mean not one, not a single, out of the 25,000 listeners out there, have not one person email me and say, Jack, you know what we did? We paid off our credit cards and we stopped using them. We cut them up in little pieces and we're never going to use them again. And you jerk, it's ruined my life. It's made everything terrible and I don't know what to do now. Not a single person has regretted the decision to stop using them. I can show you millions of people that regret the decision to use them in the first place. So you tell me which one works better for living that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And when you see drivel like this in the media, remember it's because they want this to be a consumer-driven economy instead of an intelligence-driven economy. I'd like people to start using their freaking brains like I talked about yesterday. Anyway, let's go on to another one before I get my blood pressure up because I really don't need to do that today. All right, on the next one, I guess I could get my blood pressure right back up if I let it happen here because we're going to talk about my favorite people to hate, Monsanto. Uh, but, I mean, I actually think this is good news because it's pointing out one of the weaknesses in the approach of we'll just genetically modify everything and solve the world's problems by destroying the food supply and uh, destroying the land because we'll just teach farmers they don't need to worry about crop rotation or taking care of the soil or you know effective predator predators for for insect control we'll just we'll just make the corn poison the pest and then it won't poison people i mean come on we'll just take genes from a fish and splice them into corn that'll be cool and we'll do it with cotton and we'll do it with beets and we'll do it with we we'll do it with everything and we'll we'll make terminator genes and on and on and on it goes but no nah, i don't want the blood pressure to get up today so uh, let's talk about a Monsanto big failure. Let's listen to this now. This is uh, the latest report on Monsanto's GMO corn, and I'll come back and give you my thoughts on it. Monsanto investors are concerned about reports that one of the company's key crops may be losing its effectiveness in warding off crop-killing bugs, the very same pests that it was designed to combat. A researcher at Iowa State University says corn crops at several farms in northeast Iowa are being attacked by destructive pests, and there are fears that the Monsanto crop is spawning a superbug. Monsanto is playing down the potential problem. The company sent, sent us a statement saying its corn seed is working as expected on more than 99% of the acres planted. Monsanto has been selling this rootworm-resistant corn since 2003, and it's worked exceedingly well, maybe too well. Because of its success, many farmers have relied solely on it, and experts have long warned that relying on a single method allows pests to change and adapt. Some have also done less crop rotation. Monsanto generates more than $4 billion a year in sales from corn seed, or about 40% of its overall sales last year. Shares of Monsanto are modestly lower at midday Monday, but off-session lows. For CNN Money, I'm Allison Kosick at the New York Stock Exchange. Well, I can't say I'm even remotely surprised by this. Um, if you rely on a single method, any pest will eventually adapt. So what they've done is this, this rootworm in the corn that they're worried about, they've come up with a genetic modification that causes the corn to produce a toxin that kills the rootworm. So the corn makes its own pesticide. It's in the roots, and it's in the corn, and we get to eat it. Isn't that great? Anyway... Um, the corn worm, the root worm, chews into the roots just a little bit, gets a little bit of this toxin, and dies. 
Well, if you do that and you plant corn in the exact same place in huge fields over and over and over again, you don't rotate your crops, you keep doing that, you kill billions and billions of billions of these little worms. And then a few survive. And then a few more of their offspring survive. And then these are insects, and they replicate very, very quickly. And eventually you end up with a rootworm that's resistant to the toxin that you've been putting into the bodies of human beings and into the bodies of rootworms. The rootworms recover from and create subsequent generations much more quickly than human beings. And you end up with a pest that eventually you make far worse uh, than, than you, you, uh, you, you, know, you originally had. Now here's the thing, Monsanto says that their seed is working as expected in 99% of fields. The 1%'s a problem. It always starts as 1% in a resistant strain of anything, whether it's a resistant bacteria, a resistant pest, a resistant virus, it doesn't matter. Once that resistant strain begins to replicate, it has numbers on its side, and eventually it has an advantage over all the rest of its species because you're killing them with something that doesn't kill it, and it be not, the 1% becomes the 99%. And that's just one of the dangers of this genetic modification uh, industry. And you hear that $4 billion dollars in patented seeds from Monsanto um, that are going all over the world and uh, causing grief for people all over the world. And the big thing here is the farmers are dependent on a single source for all their solutions, and that means when they start to have these failures, by that time they've adapted everything they're doing to that one source and to that one system, and it makes it very difficult for them to convert to something else. That way you hem them in and you just keep coming up with new modifications and doing it over and over again, and by destroying our ecosystem, ruining our crop diversity, and putting toxins in our bodies, these people have literally created their own money-printing press for them for themselves. That's what this company does. That's why I'm opposed to it. That's why I think we need to stay away from genetically modified crops at every opportunity possible. Um, next up, just a quick email here from Donna. Donna says, I just listened to your podcast on 82911, that was yesterday of course, in which you play a video concerning Los Angeles County and the harassment of people living off-grid in the middle of nowhere and what they're going through. The county is going to, is going to develop Sorry, the county is going to develop this area. They will develop it with huge wind and solar farms. How do I know this? Because it's happening in Kern County next door also. I'm living it. We bought our property knowing full well this area is not zoned for 300-foot wind turbines. Doesn't matter. Zoning is made to be changed, it seems. So maybe that's the reason they're trying, because they're just forcing these people off their land. They're just bullying them and harassing them. And if you didn't hear yesterday's show, you'll want to go listen to it. Uh, and you can just go to YouTube and Google, uh, Google, Google on YouTube. Search for on YouTube, Battle for the California Desert, and you'll see a little 10 minute, uh, mini documentary made by Reason Films. And uh, I, I think that this is probably what's really going on because I couldn't see the land being zoned, uh, to, you know, or being uh, developed into a, like a community type thing. So apparently, they want to put wind turbines and solar panels in the middle of the LA County desert, uh, in, uh, as opposed to 
Uh, back when Schwarzenegger was governor, he wanted to put wind and solar farms in the actual part of the desert and like the, the horrifically horrible part of the desert that no one actually lived in. And Boxer and Feinstein, those two senators, stepped in and prevented it and said that they didn't want to disturb habitat with it. So they would rather push people out of the inhabited part of the desert than put these things in the uninhabited part of the desert. There's also probably an infrastructure issue there uh, since it's in L.A. County, relatively close to Los Angeles. Uh, it's going to be much less costly to provide the infrastructure to move the power from the desert to the power distribution centers. Um, so that's probably right, Donna, and I'm sorry to hear that it's happening to other people as well. This is, again, why I say get away from big cities. Uh, I had a self-defense story for you yesterday. I have another one for you today. I guess the first one spawned the second one, and more of them will probably come now. This one comes from Matthew. Matthew says, hey, Jack, big fan. Thanks for all the work you put into the show. This is Pistol Whip from the forum. I heard Nick's self-defense story. It made me glad he fared all right. I was in a self-defense situation myself recently involving me pulling a knife, not a gun. That said, it moved way up in my list of priority. Local regulations be damned. Uh, you were right. When you need security, you need it uh, RFN, which means right effing now. <laughs> Uh, I was at the ATM last night. I know a bad idea. Only time I wasn't at work for about two weeks. I picked the best lit one in the better part of town as it made a difference, uh, as though it made a difference. I'm pulling some cash off this newfangled pay card I've been issued. So far, it's good. Pull up a big old parking lot. is pretty much deserted. A few cars over the uh, Chinese place, but nothing out of the ordinary. Walk up to the ATM. Still nothing. Pop in card, start transaction. Press for English, sure. Pin number, okay. Then a brother in dark sedan on the other side of the parking lot cranks, uh, park lot cranks up. No car door had shut means he's already in it when I got there. Heard the bass thumping across the parking lot. Some gangster war drums. It starts rolling across the parking lot at my direction. Nothing too odd. There are two X's on each side of the parking lot. Something didn't feel right though. Kept on with the transaction. Withdraw from checking. Enter amount. The guy rolls up behind me and stops short. At this point, I hit high alert. Hand goes to my pocket knife. Uh, get receipt with transaction. At this point, it's just as fast to finish as cancel. Then he opens the car door and starts to step out. I turned and had a pocket knife out before his foot hit the pavement. Was reaching for a second one. I don't recall actually pulling the knife. Just turned around and hearing it click open. Thank God he must have change of heart. His car door shut. He drove off. I took my money, card, and receipt and bailed out. The thing is, when it happened, I didn't get nervous or scared or excited. I didn't even think. I just got my knife out and started to look for ways I could get away. Not many. I was boxed in with three sides by the ATM. So if he kept coming, I was going to have to go through him. When I got home later, it really hit me. I almost got mugged. If he decided to press, I had no way out. If I had waited for him to get out and he had trusted my instincts, I would probably not have been able to get to my knife. I, if I had done exactly what I'd done, I probably would have been, if I hadn't done exactly what I'd done, I probably would have been screwed. And before anybody says anything, no, I did not have a gun on me. County regs make it damn near impossible to even purchase a handgun legally without having a buddy in the local police department. If I could buy one, I'd have one for four years ago when I turned 21 and half a dozen since. But this was a real wake-up call for me. Hope someone else gets the message without being in a bad situation. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Keep on keeping on, brother. Matthew, I don't know where you live. It sounds like you live in Chicago or New York. I mean, those are like the only two places I know that are that hard to even buy a gun, let alone carry one. But when you don't have anything else, a knife and pepper spray is at least something. 
And here's the fact about criminals. In some situations, they will not back off, but most of them are, are cowards. That's why they're criminals in the first place. They're looking for easy victims, and a lot of times when they know the victim's not going to be easy, they just go elsewhere. It doesn't happen all the time. Fortunately, it happened this time. Uh, a gun is a much better self-defense tool than a knife. Um, if the guy that was rolling up on this on Matt had a knife or had a gun of his own, it probably wouldn't have worked out so well because he could have just shot him and then walked over and took what he had. And, and I mean, you, you could never second guess a situation like this because none of us were there and what should be done. But it does, it does bring something up interesting here, doesn't it? That they build these ATM vestibules like three sided in so that you can it literally creates a mugging alcove. You see a person go in, there's no way out. Uh, I think it's a stupid way to build build an ATM. There shouldn't be anything like that. If you want to put a little overhang, fine. But there should be three ways out from any kind of ATM. And it's something to look for when you're choosing ATMs to use. It's also a reason that, even though I'm against credit cards, as we discussed earlier, I'm actually a big fan of debit cards uh, so that you mitigate the need to get cash in situations where you really shouldn't do it. You shouldn't be going up to an ATM in the dark. And if it's the only time you can, I understand that. I would look for a drive-up ATM would be a little bit more helpful. Um, and I'm big on carrying cash, paying with cash. But, you know, I don't have a problem whipping out that ATM check card, uh, check slash credit card, uh, to pay for something, uh, when cash is not in hand. And that prevents you from ending up in these situations. Just a thought. I do think it's better to spend cash wherever you can. It will make you spend less. When you part with bills, you'll spend less. You'll control your own spending. You won't buy stuff you can't afford. Um, as uh, do not buy stuff you cannot afford. That's you know that type of thing uh, from the earlier little skit. Um, next email comes in from Chuck, and it says, "Link for Jack, 2013 eBay." I thought you were crazy with the post-2012 eBay thing. Clearly, I was wrong. Let's start saving now. And here's a quote from an article. I spent 20 or $30 on batteries. I could have spent that on shoes or a bag, joked Myers, 34, who works in human resources for a Manhattan law, law firm. Maybe I'll sell them on eBay. Uh, and this is what I was talking earlier about, uh, buyer's remorse. This is on the AP. Let me read a little bit of it to you. In Hurricane Irene's wake, buyer's remorse. New York, the AP, people along the East Coast gave thanks when the storm passed by Sunday and inflicted relatively little harm. But Monday morning they were complaining. Some were annoyed that they braved long lines to buy batteries and canned goods that they didn't end up needing. Others in stores demanding refunds on extra flashlights, tarps, and even junk food they snapped up. Many uh, were pl planning to po host post-hurricane parties to get rid of all the extra food they bought or were preparing to sell their unwanted stuff on eBay. Hurricane Irene, which barreled through the Carolinas and eastern seaboard, had exposed the new thriftiness Americans have adopted during the economic downturn. In previous years, people might have just suffered the extra emergency supplies into their cupboards, but stagnant wages, high unemployment, and a volatile stock market have turned spenders into penny pinchers, and many people are having buyer's remorse. David McDuff stood in the return line at the Home Depot in Falls Church, Virginia on Monday, waiting to get back his, his money back on the $500 gas-powered generator he bought in case he lost power over the weekend. In years past, McDuff said he might have just been tempted to keep the generator, and his dumb ass should have, by the way. But now I just feel like I don't need it, said McDuff, 55, a contractor. I'll buy it again if the need arises. So far, Hurricane Irene gave an unexpected windfall to home improvement chains and grocers 
to, and blow to department and clothing stores. Stores aren't eager to give back those sales, but they also don't want to alienate their shoppers by being difficult to deal with. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. What do I always say? We don't prepare, we don't prepare for events. We prepare to deal without systems of support. This is what happens when people wait until the disaster comes and then run out and buy a bunch of shit they don't understand or don't need. If you bought food, and you bought food you're going to eat anyway, and you bought food that your family eats all the time, if you stored what you eat and you ate what you stored, why would you return food? You're going to need it sooner or later anyway. If you bought a generator because you wanted it for whenever your power went out, not just because you got scared because the guy on TV said it might go out this weekend, why the hell would you return it? This is what happens when, when normal people start to behave like retards. It really is. And they do this because they're, they're, they're lathered up into it because for 24-7, uh, we had for two days in a row, really, I guess you'd say, uh, 48-2, right? We had nothing but the hurricane's here, the hurricane's there, it's coming here next. Oh my god, not the hurricane! Anything but the hurricane! That was the crap we listened to on the news. What did Jack tell you? It's going to slam the Carolinas. It's going to slow down. It's going to be no damn big deal by the time it gets up the East Coast. But Jack's crazy, right? Now, all of these people that finally went out and put a little bit of preparedness into their lives, why are they having remorse and why are they putting the stuff back and why are they asking for refunds and why are they dumping it on eBay? Because they never understood what they did in the first place. They didn't have any idea why they were doing what they were doing and what the purpose of it was. Are you going to tell me that there's no potential that New York City could be without power in the next couple weeks or Falls Church, Virginia, where this guy was returning a generator? Are you telling me there's no potential? There's no, Irene's gone. It's over. See, this is why. Helping you live the life you want if times get tough or even if you don't. This is why we have the prime directive of prepping. Everything that you do to prep today should make your life better, even if nothing ever really goes wrong. But instead, instead we have a reactionary prepping, and that's what leads to misery, and that's what leads to people falling out. And these are the same people... These are the same people that will end up crying on camera, I can't believe the government hasn't gotten here yet. I can't believe that we're all alone in this. When another disaster comes, because they'll be like, oh, I've seen this movie before, and it didn't work out that way, and I don't really need to worry. I don't want to have a bunch of stuff again that I don't have anything to do with. But I can tell you what, the people on the East Coast that were prepared, that listened to this show, or involved in other prepper communities, you know what they did when they saw this storm coming? They tightened things up a little bit and went, okay. They didn't run out and panic. They didn't strip the, the shelves bare at Walmart. They didn't have a freakazoid attack, right? They didn't go out and buy a generator. They pro you know why the guy's returning the generator, the real reason? He probably doesn't even know how it works. He probably didn't buy gas to go with it. He probably went and bought the generator, put it in the house, and went, huh, what do I do? You know, like some of the fools that they had. We have a, a rash of people that, had, you know, here's what happened. We had a commercial, or not a commercial, news on. There have been about 10 people killed in the storm, and I don't mean to demean that number at all. All life is precious, and I feel terrible for anybody that died and anybody that lost anybody. But it was a relatively low number, and for the news, it's a disaster, right? When you can't say there's been several hundred killed, it's just, I mean, you don't know what to do with yourself. So the newscasters were saying, well, we expect at least that number to double because of things like people being asphyxiated by generators. First of all, I don't think it happened. 
But second of all, do you know how it happens? Do you know how you get asphyxiated by a generator? You take the generator and you stick it in the middle of your living room, you run an extension cord to your window unit and your refrigerator, and you fire it up and you let it run in your house. That's how you get asphyxiated with a generator. Or you stick it down in your basement, you know, and you've got air exchange up to the, and you, you think, oh, it's, it's, out, it's not in the main room. I mean, you have to, you have to be stupid to kill yourself with a generator. I mean, I guess you could electrocute yourself if you did something wrong with wiring or whatever, but basically, you have to run a generator in your side, inside your house to asphyxiate yourself. That shows us two things. One, people buying things they don't understand, right? And not being prepared until the last minute. And the news, once again, having to take something that's already bad enough. Millions and millions of dollars in damage. The Carolinas tore apart. No, we're going to have 10 more people die in the next 24 hours. And how do they know this? Oh, because, uh, somebody, that's what it says on the teleprompter. You can't be reactionary. You have to think about every decision you make and every choice that you make and do what makes sense for you long term. And yes, check out eBay now for disaster supplies. And in January 2013, you will see the, of the most unprecedented glut of people dumping stuff. Because I'm going to tell you in 2012, Starting about January, February, the people that are in the business of selling you stuff are going to lather the 2012 prophecy like crazy. There's going to be specials about it. Nat Geo's want to do specials about it. All this doomsday prepper crap. I'm going to meet with them in, uh, in Denver. I don't know if they're going to like what they hear from me, by the way. Because I'm going to tell them that you guys, my audience, is the bigger, better, long story. It's the story that can become multi-seasons. It's not some hype. It's not some bullshit. People actually changing their lives for the better and living a better life and being prepared for disasters, that's the real story here. But they don't want to see that, apparently. And this is what it leads to. Just a thought. Um, next one. Uh, this comes to me from Sean, and I'm not really going to talk about it a lot, just to make you aware of it. It says, Hi Jack, I stumbled upon this resource, and it's agspace.nal, and I'll put a link in the show notes for you, but .nal.usda.gov. When looking up uh, info on seed propagation, and figured I'd pass it along. It turns out the United States Department of Agriculture maintains a huge online listing of research publications. Some sifting through the chaff is required, but it appears uh, to be a useful site. At least I found the seed propagation info I was seeking, and he's got a link for that particular thing. So uh, it sounds like there's just a ton of information available for free from the USDA on on plant types and uh, seed propagating and everything else. So I'll provide that link for you guys today. Uh, it may be very useful to you in some of your planning uh, for aquaponics or greenhouses or anything else like that. Um, here's another article that was sent in to me by Ash. And Ash sends me this article, not Ash, by the way, Ash, A-S-H, uh, from Counterpunch that says why we're not going to have a double-dip recession. And this is by Dean Baker. The latest fad among economic forecasters is to talk about the growing probability of a double-dip recession. They have raised fears that the economy will again go spiraling downward to a point where it has hardly made up any of the ground lost in the last recession. This indeed is a scary prospect. However, the data suggests that the double-dip gang is off the mark in raising these fears. Before reviewing the evidence, it's important to remember who these economic forecasters are. Economic forecasters are not workers like dishwashers and cab drivers who are held accountable for the quality of their work. 
They could be wrong every day about everything and face little risk to their career prospects. I completely agree with this up to this point. Go back to 2006 or 7 and see what most widely quoted forecasters had to say about the economy. Almost none of them noticed the $8 trillion housing bubble that was on the verge of collapsing and wrecking the economy. With very few exceptions, the word from forecasters, well, we had clearer skies ahead. If you thought missing the biggest downturn in 80 years would be a stride against your record, then you don't understand economic forecasting. There's no reason to believe that forecasters are any more knowledgeable about the economy today than they were four or five years ago. Again, I agree. The recession means that the economy is actually shrinking. Generally, the economy has gone into recession when the Fed raised interest rates to slow the economy in order to bring down inflation. Normal story is the higher interest rates lead to reduced production of of interest-sensitive items, most specifically cars and houses. Most post-war recessions were kicked off when car sales and house sales and new construction plummeted. There seems to be little risk of a substantial decline in either car sales or house sales in construction, primarily because the levels are so low already. Car sales are currently running a bit below 13 million annual rate. By comparison, they were well over 16 million annually in the years before the recession. It's difficult to envision the sort of big dip in sales that can tip off a recession. Car sales are not likely to fall below the 12 million or 10 million annual pace. Wait a minute. Let's stop there a second. So they fell from 16 to 13, and it was a disaster. But it's no big deal if they fall from 13 to 10. Who is this clown? Let me keep going. In this, it's the same story with housing. In the years leading up to the crash, the, the country uh, was building close to 1.9 million housing units a year. In recent months, we have been building homes at less than 600,000 annual rate. How much lower would anyone think the number can go? How about this, ask clown? A lot lower because right now we have more houses than we need. So when we build 600,000 new houses, we are still making the problem worse. Right now, to build houses, for every house we build, we need to be tearing two crappy ones down to make the numbers balance back out in about five years. Just a thought. In short, we simply don't have the basis for the typical recession of post-World War II era. Who said it was going to be typical? Um, both car sales and housing construction are already so low they don't have much room to fall. Okay, I'll let you read the rest of the article if you want to. Here's why he's wrong. They have plenty of room to fall. If you're doing 13 million new units of cars a year in the United States right now, and they used to be 16, and 3 million was the, the consequence of the current recession, what's another 3 or 4 million do? To an already depressed industry, to an already depressed economy. Here's the thing, though. I don't think he's totally wrong, and I think this guy is going to get a little bit of time to gloat, because I still think... I still think the false recovery is not done, and there is a big uptick spike before the next crash. I, I do believe in the double-dip recession. I don't think we've gone enough into fake recovery mode yet. I know a lot of people are starting to doubt my call on that. Remember, I called that before the recession hit. When I was saying, get your money out of the market, get your money out of the market, in summer of 2008, when I first started the show, I was saying we're going to have a massive recession, a false recovery, and a deeper recession. I said, that, unlike these analysts, I said that before the first recession hit. I still am sticking to my guns there. I don't know how long the recovery goes before the other side. It could be four or five years. I doubt it, um, but here's the possibility. Uh, the current ass clown in chief gets thrown out, and a new ass clown in chief, Rick Perry, comes in and takes over as the new ass clown. The new ass clown has a great business record because Texas did it for him. 
And that's, that's fact. Uh, and, but he's well liked and there's a lot of financial shenanigans that he'll allow to go on because he's, he's, his, if you ever saw the, the, uh, South Park, uh, episode where they were talking about voting and they had to vote between a douchebag and a turd sandwich, um, this is the next election. Douchebag and turd sandwich, you decide who's who. So the, let's say the turd sandwich wins and the, you say the turd sandwich is Perry. So, He creates this, 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 uh, this new way to play, roll the dice, you know, in his administration and probably a very pro-Republican Senate and, and House because people are pissed. And when they're pissed, they simply vote against the status quo. It doesn't matter, you know, you go from douchebag to third sandwich. That's how it works. It's a game that gets played. And in 2012 and in 2013 after the election, we see a massive rally in the market. And it's all built on hype and falsisms. And that lets the inflation kick in that hasn't really kicked in yet. What I've said is recovery will cause inflation. And that's what the Fed has been doing. They've been trying to make inflation and they've been failing to make inflation. Trillions of dollars, but they can't make it. Let's say that this new, new era of economic prosperity that gets promised to the people looks good going in and it restores confidence in investing and confidence in consumers. consumers. And now the big investors know it's a game. So they go, they go all in early because they know when to go in because they know the whole way the pantomime is going to work out. And when it comes to the top end, this is where the big people take the last of the money out and start moving their wealth permanently into Asia and other developing markets. That's what I kind of see coming. And remember, I might sound like I'm going out on a limb and being crazy here. The other call that I've made, which is looking more and more like it's going to come to be, is the Rick Perry call. And I made that call before Obama was president. I said, he's either a one or two term president, one way or the other. It's probably a one term. Your next president is Rick Perry. This is before Obama was elected. Now, how can I look forward into this? Because I take all the crap, clutter, and bullshit like this guy's writing about and all these economists he's rightfully putting down look at, and I look at the nut and bolt facts on the ground. And the people of this country are still stupid enough to be deluded into spending their money through articles like six reasons to keep using your credit cards. Right? They're still stupid enough to buy food and return food as though they're not going to eat food tomorrow. And as long as that dumbness is there and manipulable, if you can create a tiny spark of recovery, if you can add a hundred thousand jobs, uh, more than, more than the, uh, the population growth for a few quarters, and you can push the market back up, you can reinstill the stupidity and put people back to sleep, and they'll start blowing money they don't have again. They'll stop following the advice of don't buy a stuff you cannot afford. And that's what I see for the future, and that's why I think you need to be preparing. Um, here's what I could use some help with, and I'll put a link uh, up that was sent to me with this. But Craig basically sent me an email that says naturally blue, naturally brewed, naturally brewed beer creates the antibiotic tetracycline. And below is a few paragraphs from an online novel currently being written online, and there's a link, and I'll give you the link. But I'll read the the couple paragraphs. Jonathan and his family had attacked Garth's infection very aggressively using dozens of antibacterial and antiviral herbal remedies. The most effective cure to Garth's delight was copious amounts of beer brewed according to the most ancient traditions. It turns out beer, when brewed naturally according to the recipes used by ancient Hebrews and Egyptians, naturally created the powerful broad-spectrum antibiotic called tetracycline in the body. 
This fact was discovered in the last decade of the 20th century when archaeologists and scientists discovered tetracycline in the bones of 3,000-year-old mummies and concluded that tetracycline was naturally produced during the, process, the production of beer. Subsequently, many historians and scientists came to the conclusion that naturally fermented beer was likely for halting many of the plagues that devastated Europe during the Middle Ages. It seems when European, Europeans stopped drinking the infected water from filthy rivers, which was infested with deadly bacteria, and started drinking naturally fermented beer, the plagues were stayed and the populations of Europe stopped decreasing. Even babies and children were given beer instead of water, and their mortality rates plummeted. In this way, beer had likely saved the word world. For Garth, he was just mainly mainly just glad the beer had saved him. Jonathan had promised him after he had recuperated sufficiently, if it were possible, he would show Garth how beer was brewed at the Walls Ranch. Um, this is my opinion. It's probably true. It has too much citing of his history and research to probably not be true. But all you home brewers like me out there that are brewing up your batches of Brown Mild and American Pale Ale and all probably has nothing to do with us. Okay, And here's why. The biggest difference that we have between our beer that we make and commercial breweries is we don't pasteurize our beer. So we have live yeast and live things because uh, there are always going to be some bacteria and natural yeast and something like that. But the way we make our beer like a clean tasting, good quality beer made in the appropriate style. So a pale ale tastes like a pale ale. An IPA tastes like an IPA. A, a, a Belgian ale tastes like a Belgian ale is the yeast strain. The biggest influence on beer flavor, more than hops, more than the grain variety used, is the yeast. You can take two, this is a great experiment, by the way. Brew up two batches, especially kind of a paler colored ale, uh, you know, without a lot of the, so you can really taste the difference come through. Uh, maybe just a little bit of caramel malt and use the same hops, the same amounts, the same, vo everything the same. Brew one with a, a clean fermenting American ale yeast and brew another one with, let's say, a Belgian ale yeast. Put the two beers side by side and the difference will blow you away. And they'll both probably be great beers. Why do I go through all that yeast chemistry lesson? Because to make beer be produced consistently and have a flavor that we like, we've worked very hard since its invention to come up with single yeast strains that are very, very repeatable, that are very, very clean, that are made up of large numbers of one specific strain of yeast. Naturally fermented beer means that you put your fermentation vat, instead of sealing it off and pitching your yeast, you let it open to the air and you let wild yeasts and wild bacteria, lactobacteria, like the way you ferment cabbage. You don't pitch yeast when you ferment cabbage into coleslaw. You add salt and you put it, just like I talked about earlier this week, you put it in a crock and you let natural uh, bacteria, much of it that's already on the cabbage, do the work for you. When you make beer that way, there's some pretty good beers done that way, but they're very specific to areas where the climate is, is cool and moderate and, for interest, lambic. Lambic has a lot of lactobacterium in it. Uh, you can only make a real lambic, uh, a really good one. Uh, you, there's ways to do it now with home brewers and different strains and all, but true lambic has to be made in an area about 10 miles surrounding the city of Brussels, Belgium. And anything outside of there is not going to have it be spot on. Because as these wild yeasts and wild bacteria are, are entering the thing, as the, as the beer ferments, and these open vats on the roof of the breweries, and that's literally what it is. They have a vat 
concrete vat full of, you know, thousand gallons of, of wort fermenting, and it's just open to the air. And that's how they do that there. And you worry, well, can't you get sick that way? No. The alcohol in beer, with, even with natural fermentation, anything that would be pathogenic to a human being, once the alcohol hits a certain point and the acidity hits a certain point, dies. Well, with these wild yeasts in Belgium, what happens is there's like, does, instead of one single main variety of yeast, there's all these different things going on. And even the ones that aren't any kind of danger to you, they start to die off as acidity and alcohol climb. So they each do a different part of the fermentation process. And you come up with this wonderful tart, sour beer that, that Brussels is famous for, again called Lambic or Lambic. Some people say it that way. I call it Lambic. Uh, and then there's ways to add cherries and different things to it that, that make Creek and Frambrose with raspberries and, and all of that good stuff. But that's natural fermentation. So when we're making homebrew beer, we're not doing that. And if we do that, maybe we do end up with tetracycline. But realize that the Egyptians, when they were brewing this beer, they weren't using barley. They were using mostly spelt. Um, there was some barley used, but the first beers made were made with spelt. Apparently this worked out for the Europeans as well. The thing is, we've developed a taste for modern beer. And if we, if you, I guarantee you, if you brew a batch of this beer this way, Uh, as long as you use a hydrometer and make sure that you've got the alcohol count where it's supposed to be, it will work. It, you, when you prime it in the bottle, it will make a nice, beautiful head for you, but it's going to be very sour, and you probably aren't going to like it. And the warmer your climate, the more that's going to be the case. So why did people drink it back then? It's like anything else. You develop a taste for what's available. So... Honestly, if you took a person from you know, the 1600s and handed them a, a, a glass of a modern American ale, they probably would feel the same way about it you would feel about their ale. Uh, just some thoughts on that one. But if anybody can bring me fact, on-the-record stuff that says this is in fact true, it may be an interesting thing to experiment with in case we ever need it. Uh, but on antibiotics, uh, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy will be on later this week, and they'll tell you a way to skin that cat a lot easier. Uh, last one for the day, and it's a great email. comes from Josh. Josh says, I was just thinking about the difference between two very similar words, insuring and ensuring. Insuring is hedging, a bet against something negative that may happen. Insuring is, or, is making positive that something will happen. When you, what you and your program advises ensuring uh, for a positive future rather than insuring against the negative future. Most are advocating to hedge bet against a potential negative. With insurance, the bet is usually lost. However, when you invest in the future, insuring, uh, nothing is lost, only gained. Uh, I'm sure I could have said this better, but kudos for having the right approach, guaranteeing a better future for all of us, even those who don't prep yet. I'm curious to what your opinion on this minor distinction is. Um, I think it's awesome. I think it absolutely sums up what we've been talking about from day one. Things are going to go wrong, but life will go on. Until the day they burn you and, and scatter your ashes or throw six feet of earth on top of you, you've got a life to live. And I've said it over and over again. Those who prepare only for failure are just as stupid as those who only prepare for success. We have to prepare for both. And there is a place for insurance, insuring your life, insuring your health, insuring your business against liability, insuring your home, right? insuring your car. Uh, the law says we have to do that. If you want a mortgage, you have to insure your house. The lender wants the insurance against possible damage. But what we do talk about in life, planning a garden isn't an insurance policy. It's a policy that insures your future. 
not insures, insures, right? And I'm not even sure if I got the pronunciation of those two words right. They're easy to see when they're written, but not so easy to get out in the dialect. And yet, I guess you have to use the context of the sentence to understand what you're talking about there. But I think it's a very subtle and, and it's a very uh, interesting distinction that Josh has brought up. So that's what I want to know from you guys today. Give me some comments. What are you? What actions are you taking today? That are going to, you know, positively impact your future, even if nothing goes wrong. And how will they help insure you if something does go wrong? So that we're playing both sides of things. You know, the masters that are at investing that do all this speculating, they play both sides of the equation. They buy futures in a stock, and if the stock goes down, they make money, and if the stock goes up, they make money. And the risk has such a risk-reward ratio, basically the only way they can lose a relatively small amount of money is if the stock goes nowhere. They collar the, the, the option with a put and a call at the same time. And uh, then they ride against it, and they play both sides of the bet. They offload the risk to somebody else. Well, in our lives, we can't offload the risk to somebody else, but we can mitigate the risk. And we can ensure that as we're still alive, as long as we're not scattered ashes or under a pile of dirt, that our lives are positive going forward. That's what this show's all about. Josh, thank you for that awesome, awesome distinction there. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for 